0: really important to see how disability is represented in different types of media because that's often how we understand the world.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told.
0: I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics.
1: And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we're professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. This episode is sponsored by the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. For more than a century, the college has educated students to relentlessly pursue the art, science, and integrity of stories. They're committed to following First Amendment principles in a digital-first environment as they prepare democracy's next generation. The news media have a habit of presenting certain topics and events in the same way over and over again. It's often unintentional, and it's often benign, but with certain topics and certain groups, those templates can have adverse effects, such as delegitimizing causes or marginalizing groups. Discussing this with me today is Dr. Joy Jenkins, assistant professor in the University of Tennessee-Knoxville's School of Journalism and Electronic Media. Joy explains the problematic language the media historically used when covering people with disabilities and relates that to a 1977 protest in which roughly 150 disabled activists demanded enforcement of civil rights regulations. Along the way, Joy provides advice for today's journalists on how to avoid falling into the same old routines. Joy, welcome to the show. Now, this seems like an under-researched topic, uh, uh, representations of people with disabilities in the media, in historical research as well. And oftentimes that's just because I'm not that you know uh, well-read. I always am hesitant to ask that, but it seems to me this topic doesn't get as much research as you might expect. Why is that? And is that, is that even accurate in the first place?
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely accurate. And it's definitely a really important area uh, to consider, just the broad scope of disability representations in media. You know, there are books and there are studies and there are case studies of particular movies and shows and things like that. Um, And also some historical looks at how disability representations have evolved, particularly in mainstream film and things like that. Um, But I would say disability representations in news in particular is um, certainly an understudied area and one that... Uh, we need more investigation into because uh, there are so many important kind of watershed events in the disability rights movement. There's opportunities to look at this historically um, and to see how news coverage of uh, people with disabilities uh, has evolved, how it's changed, how the language has changed, um, and also what it looks like now, and being able to put all of that into context. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, exactly why it is that it's under researched. Um, I think part of it is just when we look at minority groups, Um, disability does often uh, fly under the radar. It's a massive uh, minority group in the U.S. and around the world, and one that will continue to grow. A lot of us, probably most of us, have been touched by disability in some way. And so it's a really important one to consider, Um, but sometimes flies under the radar when we look at certain types of representation that tend to be studied. And it's also one that has a lot of interconnection. So disability um, touches race and gender and class and sexual identity um, and other types of groups as well. And so there's a lot of potential to really see how all those things come together um, and understand what it's looked like in terms of journalistic coverage.
1: So you mentioned that other research that has been done, at least some work has been done on, on the representation of people with disabilities in the news media. What are some of those, paint with a broad brush here, what has the other research found in terms of how how this group is represented in the media?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the important things to recognize and that I've seen referenced um, in several studies looking at disability representation is the fact that media depiction of disability really plays a key role in the social construction of disability and, more importantly, how we perceive it and how we perceive uh, disabled people. So, it's a really important part of culture. It's really important to see how disability is represented in different types of media because that's often how we understand the world is through seeing it um, represented in media so that's the reason why a lot of scholars have looked at this Um, i think the one of the particular takeaways from research on Disability in media is the various stereotypes um, that have emerged and become really, really common um, and recognizable. Um, there's several common ones. There's um, this is something we see in mainstream films, in particular, that portray characters with disabilities as these savants who are very brave and courageous and special and brilliant. We think about you know a character like Forrest Gump um, or something like that, where their disability is you know firmly entrenched with that idea. Uh, we also theme- see themes around pathology. So the need to cure the disability or people with disabilities living in isolation or even living in institutions or being cared for and becoming kind of a burden to the able-bodied people who are caring for them. Um, in some cases, that goes even further to say that it's better to, to be dead than disabled. Or we see themes of euthanasia, like in films like um, Me Before You and The Sea Inside and others like that. And so, and a lot of those are very firmly connected with this medical model of disability, this idea that it's this individual issue that needs to be fixed in some way. Um, and then that person can somehow be integrated in society. Um, but there are others too. There are um, the idea that somebody that's disabled is superhuman. Um, there's actually a stereotype called the super crip where they kind of overcome enormous odds um, to be successful, which of course that suggests that the only way to be disabled or, rec- or um, admired as a disabled. Disabled person is that you overcome this like massive challenge, um, which isn't the day to day life, you know, of most disabled people. Um, we also see those with intellectual disabilities perceived as, as innocents that help us to understand life better infantilized um, in media um, depictions or even when we look at mental illness as a menace to society. We see villains who um, have mental illness, and that's something there's no empathy there. Um, And so a lot of research is really honed in on those stereotypes, where they came from, how they're perpetuated, the different type of media they're present in, and then really trying to just raise awareness and break those down so that when we come across them as media consumers or you know, as journalists or potential journalists, we can make sure to not um, contribute to that problem.
1: And I'll be interested to hear how those appeared in your own research and whether you identified those same those same frames in your own work. Before we turn to your specific case, though, there's one other topic that comes up in your research that there's some pre-existing research on, and that is this idea of how how protest is covered. This thing you you, uh, refer to as the protest paradigm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how protest tends to be covered in the news media? I think this is a topic that's received a little bit more attention in the literature. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There's been a lot of research on this over the last, um, many decades. Um, And I thought that was something that was really important to address for this particular chapter, and that we're looking at a group of uh, disabled activists who were engaging in a demonstration that drew a lot of media attention. And so the protest paradigm looks at that idea. um, It basically considers mainstream media coverage of protests. So like we might see newspapers on local TV news or national TV news or radio. Um, Those ideas uh, McLeod and Hertog put that there's this implicit template for the coverage of social protest. And so um, there's been a lot of scholarship looking at this in terms of looking at textual analysis or content analysis of protest coverage in the news to see what are those common um, characteristics that tend to define it. And so it's things like focusing specifically on lawlessness and violence, um, focusing more on the protesters themselves than on their goals and what they're trying to achieve, looking at internal dissent within the organization or the group that's protesting, looking at public frustration with the protest or how it's disrupting life, um, an emphasis on quoting official sources um, or talking about the negative implications that protests are having, whether that's damage to um, uh, businesses around it or other types of disruptions that might happen in a community. And so these have um, been identified over multiple studies and multiple examples of demonstrations and protests over different types of media, and have really become kind of common, um, recognizable facets when we see. Um, these protests covered covered in the news. And so that was something I wanted to look at. So how was this demonstration? Were there elements of it that represented or reinforced the protest paradigm? What kind, Um, when we look at all the different types of protests related to gender and race and uh, sexual identity and class and other types, um, which one does the um, disability protest coverage most closely resemble was an important question to look at. And also what types of framing um, is there where is the protest Delegitimize, uh, trivialize, legitimize—what's going on there? And so it seemed like a helpful framework uh, for looking at this case in particular.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting constellation of questions that you have there. So, so take us to 1977, right? What what is this event that that transpired in 1977 um, that your research focused on?
0: Yeah, so um, I looked at um, a demonstration uh, that occurred, as you said, um, in spring 1990, spring at 1977, um, and this was a group of around 150 um, disabled activists, Um, and these activists had various types um, of disabilities, Um, some were blind, um, some were wheelchair users, um, some were deaf or hard of hearing, um, muscular dystrophy, mental disabilities. Um, There was really a wide range of people who came together, Um, and basically they were Um, protesting and raising awareness about um, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, um, which said that federally funded programs could not discriminate against people based on disability. And so basically for like Section 504 um, had gone, you know, into practice, but it hadn't actually, none of those regulations had actually been enforced. And so years had gone by. uh, This was there. I mean, this really important um, aspect of the Rehabilitation Act, but nothing had actually gone into to practice. And so um, these activists were really frustrated um, and they didn't want any more time to go by. And then also this worry that um, if there was more work done on it, that um, the regulations would be watered down to an extent that they wouldn't be useful or even helpful uh, to the disabled community anymore. Um, and so basically protesters in San Francisco, which is um, the, the demonstration I particularly focused on, um, it took up uh, residence in the health education and welfare office. Um, and then others were stationed in HEW buildings around the country and they were calling on lawmakers to finally enforce um, section 504 um, and basically They set a deadline and um, said, we are going to stay here, we're going to camp out here, we're going to make our voices known um, until you actually put these regulations into practice so that they can benefit us and can actually give us the civil rights that we're due as American citizens.
1: So, without getting too deep into the details, how did you go about researching this? Right, Uh, what what newspapers did you look at? Or I assume it was newspapers. I I guess that's not. uh, I'm taking that for granted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I looked at newspapers. Um, So I did a textual analysis of news articles published um, in U.S. newspapers, um, specifically on the San Francisco sit-in. But I also looked at coverage of some of the other sit-ins that were going around, um, that were going on around the country that didn't last as long as the San Francisco one. um, so I looked at articles published between April 5th and May 1st, 1977, which was roughly the, um, the months when um, the sit-in was occurring in San Francisco. Um, that led me to an initial sample of 42 news articles. I'm going to keep looking and digging um, in other archives and to see if I can find more. Uh, but they were published across California news outlets, as well as other national news sources, um, including the Los Angeles Times, um, as well as the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe. Um, UPI Associated Press, kind of a range of outlets. Um, It was a mix of articles, some kind of small blips, just talking about, you know, the sit-in is ended or, you know, the the code was signed um, to more longer kind of deep dives into uh, why the demonstrators were there, what their goals were, some of the challenges they faced in even being part of a sit-in, some of the responses they got. So there was kind of a mix of links and approaches to, um, to the coverage of this event.
1: Oh, so what did you find when you got in there? Uh, uh, And we can turn and look specifically about those things that we were discussing earlier. But first, just broadly, what did you find? What stood out to you about the coverage?
0: Yeah, I mean, there were certainly elements, um, and, and these are initial findings, and um, we'll continue to dig in, but um, certainly elements of the protest paradigm that were evident in this uh, coverage. And so you look at these articles, and you definitely see this emphasis on responses from official sources. Um, in this case, it's it's politicians. So it's Joseph Califano, who was President Carter's HEW secretary and was the one that was really being pushed and impressed upon um, to, um, to an Act, um, this uh, Section 504, and so it was a mix of, you know, uh, quotes from him speaking to the demonstrators or kind of official responses or letters that came from his office, um, things like that, and there were other politicians involved with this that were quoted pretty regularly across the coverage, Um, but then there was also um, many articles that tried to balance those, uh, you know, quote-unquote official sources with demonstrators voices and so we saw pretty recognizable um people in the disability rights movement like um uh, Judy Human and uh, Dr. Frank Bow um, and others uh, who, it's interesting because when you look into um, how they talk about and describe um, their efforts to um, to organize this protest and to organize their response to it, um, I found an article from Kitty Cohn who was involved with it who said that the, uh, the people, the demonstrators identified sp- particular spokespeople, um, they had a media committee that focused on this that they put forward to speak to journalists um, and it was evident because those three in particular Uh, were quoted pretty frequently um, in terms of um, establishing the aims. Um, but when we look at the protest paradigm, as I mentioned, um, it tends to reinforce more dramatic elements of protests. And that was something that was here. Um, so references to signs, to chanting, to yelling at officials, um, to the conditions of sleeping in offices, to the fact that there was a lack of food. And so um, some of the demonstrators were having to leave because there was fear that of starvation. They didn't um, have the meals they needed. Um, and so evidence of those kind of more dramatic spectacles elements were there Um, but when we're looking at disability covers it was interesting because that was also conflated with uh, describing the accessibility equipment is something that was kind of a spectacle. So uh, bringing in big vans and people with wheelchairs getting out, because that was the only way they could travel to the protest site, um, to sign language interpreters, seeing eye dogs. And those were framed as additional dramatic elements. You know, it was kind of interesting. So very much othering those people. Um, also saw some cases of patronizing and infantilizing Um, language, which also serves to kind of other the protesters, which is evidence in the protest paradigm, as well as in disability representation. So talking about people as handicapped, maimed, somebody having a white cane in hand, a man who had never heard his own voice because he was a deaf person, um, but he was more fortunate than other people at the table who were less able-bodied than he was. Um, describing all the different disabilities, in one case, um, a journalist said that people were speaking with their hands, but they put "speaking" in quote marks, which was, you know, kind of a, an interesting approach to framing that. So, so that was very evident as well. Um, and then, lastly, um, many of the articles focused on. Um, they talked about the demonstrators and their goals, but they also leaned heavily on the cost to institutions and in actually enacting these regulations. So, um, university schools and libraries. Other public buildings having to become accessible. Uh, There's an emphasis on the cost of that, the problem of that. You know what a burden that's going to put on those institutions, and so that's something that can contribute to delegitimizing what um, the activists are trying to do.
1: Interesting. So, do do you think these representations have changed at all since this era? Was this the things you're finding? Do you think they're unique to this event, or are they still present in our media today?
0: I say it's kind of a mix. Um, so definitely the language as it has advanced, um, you're not going to see, um, you know, the word maimed in a headline, hopefully. Um, and also just more of a recognition of how important language is with disability representation. This is something that AP style has continued to develop their guidelines for. There's other, you know, various guides to disability reporting that talk about, you know, don't say um, crippled, handicapped, you know, um, those are words that are out of favor, confined to a wheelchair, those types of things. Um, And in particular, just the value of talking to the disabled person and asking them, you know, what they want to be referred to as. And so there's a lot more conversation about that now. And you see that generally reflected um, in news coverage. Um, And also, uh, yeah, not talking about the various accessibility aids as something that's kind of a spectacle or or dramatic or something like uh, people are talking with their hands. Wow. Like we've never seen anything like that before. I think there's been more of a normalization of that. Um, But there are still issues, stereotypes are still present um, uh, for disabled folks, Um, coverage of disabled people does often fall into certain categories um, when we see them represented in news coverage, so those things are still there, Um, and uh, we still see this emphasis when we have demonstrations on official sources the dramatic elements, um, focusing more on the demonstrators than on the cause and giving them space to articulate what they need and what they're asking for and what it'll look like if it's achieved. And so some of those aspects of protest coverage, I think we still see um, fairly regularly. Um, And there is a need to continue talking about how disabled people are represented and how can we um, as journalists and journalism students do a better job.
1: Well, so you just addressed one of my my big questions, and so I'd I'd invite you if there's anything that you haven't already said on this to to add it here. I I wondered what advice you might have to today's journalists, um, and but but I also want to know is there anything that historians can learn from from what you've been talking about here in your research? Right, those are two groups that, uh, you yeah. know, most of our most of our audience uh, can find themselves in one of those two groups, either as a student or professional. Um, what would you advise those two groups to do based on all of this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the big thing, as I've mentioned, is avoid stereotypes. Um, recognize what they are, recognize what they look like, um, recognize how prevalent they tend to be um, in news coverage, and avoid and push back on those. Just you know, that's just a matter of students and um, and professors. We can all educate ourselves better on that. Um, talking to disabled people, um, talking to disabled people for a range of types of stories, a range of types of topics, and focusing on the full person. Um, recognizing that a person. Is is not their, just their disability. Um, there's various other um, identity factors that, that shape who that person is and that are um, important to, to reference and to take into consideration. Um, also, thinking about um, wording, we talked about language, um, ensuring when we're talking to disabled people that we're giving them space, we're hearing them out, we're asking them how they want to be referred to, um, and what it is is important to them um, to represent in that coverage and representing that as accurately um, and fully as we possibly can, all that's really important. Um, Also thinking about headlines, thinking about photo choices, um, thinking about how all that contributes to how people are perceiving um, the disabled population in the event that we're covering them so all of that goes hand in hand, and it's really important that we avoid stereotypes you know, across the board. Um, and so for historians, I think it's really important to recognize that the, there. this is one of many um, really important um, kind of defining moments in the disability rights movement. Um, there, there are several. There's news coverage attached to all of them up through the ADA and even more recently. Um, and so taking time to really dig into these um, cases, to dig into these events, to look at coverage of how coverage of disabled people has evolved um, over, over many, many decades, looking where stories are missing and perspectives are missing and how does that shape how we view history and um, how we view uh, this group. Um, and so this is just a tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more that we can dig into um, and really use that to help us understand um, how we perceive um, the disabled community now as a result.
1: Sure. Well, Joy, I have one last question for you. It's one we pose to all of our guests, and that is, why does journalism history matter?
0: Uh, Journalism history matters because everything that that we see and and do um, in terms of the the journalism industry, um, in terms of producing journalism, understanding as consumers, training future journalists, all that is shaped by history. There is a context and there is a past um, for everything um, that we do and experience now. And understanding that past is vital um, to knowing where we are and where we're going um, and really recognizing the value of journalism in society, how it affects people, how representations in journalism matter, Um, there is a long pass in history there and understanding that is so important so that we can do good work as journalists and as professors um, and as uh, people who are studying it.
1: Absolutely. Well, Joy, that's all the time that we have, but I want to thank you one more time for being on the show. I enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you. I enjoyed it very much too. I appreciate it.
1: Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.